We're back! We're back! It's a distraction! I'm Drew! That's Roth! Hi, Roth! Hey, man. How are you? I just fell off my bike right before we recorded this. Oh, I my fell, God. I fell off again. I was coming back. I was like, oh, I better hurry up to the recording. I better speed up. And I went on a bridge, and, like, it's raining outside. And and then I slipped and fall. And, I, and like, there were people around. So I did a thing where I was like, oh, I look so stupid. Everyone's going to make fun of me. I'm 46, by the way. Like, everyone was yeah. like... well. No one likes to fall off of a thing in front of other people. Yeah, I but like, that's... like, like you know, when you're my age and you fall off a bike, people are like, "Oh my god, he might be dead." Like, you know, like, <laughs> like it's not like you're five. And people are like, "Ha ha, he pissed himself." Ha ha. No, they they expect you to shatter like a precious moments figurine but, nudged off a ledge. You know what? And I have a history of doing that, so I get it. <laughs> you know, like that that makes sense. Uh, our guest, uh, let's get right to it. It's ESPN reporter and author of "It's Better to Be Feared." Repeat guest Seth Wickersham of ESPN. How are you doing, Seth? Wow. I'm doing really well, but I'm really glad that you made the joke that was just so obvious about you falling, because I was wondering whether I should do that. Yeah, you, you know, can. The, the, you do have a history of falling and, and consequences because of it. So. Yes, you can make fun of me for falling. It's all right. We're four years that out. that anniversary now, so. was this week. Yes, it actually, was. Right? It was. It was this wow. week. And like, I'm at the point now where like, I don't think about it anymore, even though I'm talking about it as we speak right now. And then I like, but I also, I don't want to bring up around my wife. Cause like, again, she was awake and I wasn't, she's like, she doesn't really want to remember that. So like, usually I'm just like, I'm just like, Oh, Oh, I didn't notice. I didn't notice it was the anniversary, <laughs> but I totally noticed Seth. Yeah. Let's talk about you. Uh, this week you dropped, I think what. Uh, what we consider to be, and I think everyone ought to consider, the definitive story on Andrew Luck and his retirement from football and why he cut his own football career short. Um, so uh, I want to talk to you about that story and get into the meat of the story because I think like the the human aspect of the story, and I told Seth this prior to when we started recording, I thought it was the kind of story where if you did not know who Andrew Luck was and you didn't give a fuck about football, it was still a fascinating story. It, like it got to the whole man. And at one point in the story, you had Colts tackle Anthony Costanzo telling Luck, um, you have to believe that you are God's gift to the world if you're an NFL quarterback or else doubt will start to come in. And Luck clearly believed that he had to believe that and acted accordingly. But Seth, do you, as someone who's covered the league for as long as you have, do you also believe that the best quarterbacks have to think this way or else they just get or else they just fade away? Yeah, I don't think they have to think at every waking moment um, of the day, but I, I do think that there's a little gear that they have to have where, whether it's overt or not, they kind of own the fact that they're different and that they're a little special and that their job, everybody else's job kind of runs through his. And um, it, it's an interesting thing to think about because um you know maybe someone like Eli Manning didn't have it you know I don't think that he never struck me as that type but just about every other like great quarterback I think has to have that part of their personality ready to deploy uh, Eli almost didn't have to have it because of his brother where it's like okay well yeah and he was a Manning yeah exactly so it's like he he entered rooms with leverage in a way that kind of few could imagine but yeah but, but I think that Andrew, you know, I don't think that that was a part of his personality that he indulged much until he got to the NFL. And we often forget that, you know, 
stress and things like that can really cause um, you know, problems for people it can really be something that they have to contend with. Even these like famous athletes, especially these famous athletes. And, um, you know, he, uh, coming into Indianapolis, not only replacing Peyton Manning, not only being expected to be a great quarterback, but a transcendent one, but replacing the type of quarterback that Peyton Manning was where he was weighing in on everything from, you know, how the locker room was arranged to, third and short run plays running the organization the Colts kind of expected Andrew to come in and run the organization in the same type of way even though he was 22 years old and that was There's difficult really interesting in the story about that because I think that everything you said makes sense right down to the idea I think that distinction between Eli is a sort of like rich kid to the manor born I mean Andrew Luck's dad was not nearly the quarterback that Archie, that Archie Manning was, but it's not really that different in a lot of ways as an upbringing. There's just some sort of obsessiveness in him well, that almost, seemed, oh, you know, like unique. And then also, this is the part of the story that I found most fascinating, was that for all the stuff that you said, it's not an unfamiliar thing to find a quarterback who's got his, you know, thumb in everything as just a matter of course. A lot of quarterbacks do want that. It seemed like it was breaking Andrew Luck's spirit to have to be like that, that it was like, in a very real sense, making him into somebody that he uh, didn't really like very much. And I don't think that I had ever seen that before, that, you know, we know about, you know, these sort of obsessive, control-freak, hyper-competitive quarterbacks and Aaron Rodgers types, but... I never really thought about whether they could be otherwise or whether they would want to be otherwise. And the idea that there is some sort of other Andrew Luck who is, you know, maybe not an easygoing guy, but someone who is much simpler and happier than the person he had to be was really kind of revelatory to me as a reader. Yeah. Did you guys watch um, Free Solo? Yeah. Um, yes, I did. That's a really interesting comparison. I, so That's the mountain climbing movie. Uh, well, the rock climber, like Alex Honnold. Yeah, right. So I, I wrote a big story on Alex Honnold uh, maybe a year or two after the movie came out and was sort of trying to get at, you know, what's life like when he moves out of the van and into a house with his wife-to-be, you know? Because it's so different than the life that he had led. And Andrew and Alex are different people, but there are some parallels in the sense that Alex was so driven to accomplish this goal that his girlfriend at the time, Sonny, ended up being kind of a silo, right? I mean, right. remember remember the, the great scene where he decides to climb um, El Cap and doesn't tell her? Nope. And ends up bailing because he, he wasn't feeling it. And she's pissed because he's like, how, she's like, how could you do this and not tell me? And he's like, you know, it's just what I do. Right. I think that, yeah. Didn't and even, I, and like, I think that didn't even phase him. And, you know, it was really interesting getting Andrew's wife's perspective on this because she's never talked. And, you know, even though she was an incredibly accomplished athlete in her own right and professional, she moved to Indianapolis with him. They had met at Stanford, but she ended up being a silo in a very siloed life. And that's kind of his survival mechanism to try to contend with the expectations of the city, the organization himself, how to control a game that's kind of a coin flip of a game. It's what he thought would work. And, you know, she told me I had no place <laughs> because Andrew kind of just decided her role, at least in the public eye, that was one part of it. And then the second part of it, of course, was that he just, he didn't 
he, he didn't know how to communicate about almost anything. And that all of those things that he had built himself into that ended up working spectacularly well on the football field ended up kind of conspiring to be spectacularly unhealthy when he was injured and how it wasn't just that he was in chronic pain. It was how he acted in chronic pain. And there was a reckoning that he had um, to contend with all of those things. Yeah. It was interesting also because, and I do want to get to the pain thing, but difference to me between luck and Honold was that Honold was motivated, uh, you know, obsessed really with uh, free soloing El Cap but it seemed like it was a destiny that he had chosen for himself. He had a tough upbringing. I know that. And I, I had to interview him, too, for um, for Fatherly. That's where I did. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, but with Luck, it seemed like it was a very classic case of someone whose destiny was handed to him and said, okay, this is the life you're going to lead. This is what you're going to be the greatest quarterback of all time. You know, everyone's going to love you. You're going to win multiple Super Bowl titles. And, you know, it was just like, it's one of those things that is attractive to someone who's very young. Like, yeah, that sounds good. And then you pause for a second and you think, well, wait, do I actually want this? Is it wrong for me to not want it? What kind of, you know, who the hell am I to say I don't want this life when so many other people would? Yeah, and it's, it's actually more nuanced than that. It, yeah, if you're that talented at something, like what practical choice do you have, right? Yeah. But, and Andrew always kind of made it clear that in everyone kind of went with this also that, you know, he could have done anything, right. He could have been an architect or an engineer or a politician, whatever it is he wanted to do out of Stanford, but he chose to deploy whatever gifts he had to football. And Andrew went with that, but I think he was way more of a football junkie than maybe he was ever really able to admit and maybe wasn't able to admit until after he, had walked away from the game. I, I think he self-identified as a quarterback to a degree that even he couldn't quite comprehend even after he had walked away. It's he interesting. Was, he was much because... more like, and I think the question is like, do you have to do it forever? Right. I mean, you know, do you, if you, even if you want to do this career for a piece of, for a mo- moment of your life, do you have to do it forever because of that by virtue of your talent? And clearly that's where he deviated. But I think he was, every bit as much of a football junkie as Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and Drew Brees. It was just sort of under this narrative that he didn't have to be. There's something about that. I mean, so the way that your story was promoted online, you have no control over that. But there was this sort of teasing, like a surprise last act, like Andrew Luck's next move might surprise you. And obviously he's not that old yet. So the thing that everybody wants to think is like, you know, that he's going to replace Zach Wilson, like just out on <laughs> earth, like they won't have to think about Zach Wilson anymore. And now there'll be just a, oh. you know, Andrew Luck there. Oh, that's the dream. <laughs> but if I may spoil the feature, uh, yeah. because it's not a movie that like the last act is that he is looking into being a high school football coach, mm-hmm. which is not the most surprising thing for a former NFL player to do. And yet it's the nature of the story. And like, I know and I are both blowing a lot of smoke up your ass. It really is an excellent story. <laughs> Thank you. No, that... actually, I hated it. I thought it was terrible. So. Drew hated just it. A, just, um, just and a... I've been trying to convince him. Yeah, he <laughs> yeah. thinks uh, that you should write something of a similar length about Matt Ryan that would be much more interesting. <laughs> but the uh, idea of a former NFL guy becoming a high school coach is the absolute apex of Dog Bites Man in some ways. And yet, by the time you get to the end of it, the idea that there's still something in football that he wants because it seems very clear that 
he's aware in ways that he's seemingly still working through mm-hmm. that football stunted him uh, as a person in some ways. There's something kind of touching even about the idea that he would want to go back. I don't think I've ever read of all the stories about, you know, ex-NFL guy getting into coaching. This is the first time that I read it, and I was like, hell yeah, man, good for you. Yeah, it's interesting, right, that that it's not surprising that a former football player wants to be connected to the game, and yet it is kind of surprising for him because he, you know, had fallen out of love with it, made a decision, kind of wished that he had made the decision six months earlier and just walked away after the 2018 season, which was, frankly, probably his best season ever, and reestablished him as as one of the handful of best quarterbacks in the game. Um, But it's like from the moment he walked away, it wasn't that he regretted the decision because he does have clarity about that, but he has been wrestling with what did that reveal about him? And he's talked out loud to his wife. He's talked out loud to friends. He's talked out loud to me. He's talked out loud to a therapist. And, um, he doesn't have clear answers and the resolution that he's had to have the peace that he's had to make with that decision is the clear, as he told me, the clarity that he doesn't need clarity. Yeah. I I loved that quote. I thought that was really, that was what put it sort of beyond, you know, sort of standard athlete profiles. Cause I think that that, you know, that's, that's an epiphany. Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not gonna bring, I don't want to bring it back to me for like one second, but you know, it was an epiphany I had after my accident because I still don't know why it happened. Right. And I, I accepted that and I still accept it to this day, but I don't think that is something that most people accept until late in life. Like until, and I, by late in life, I mean, you know, their thirties, their forties, perhaps beyond. It's not something you're going to, it's not something you're going to uh, think about when you're like 23 and you're one of the highest paid quarterbacks in the NFL. You're right. Just, you're just not, you know. And I think that's like a really good point, Drew, that like it's basically the moment when you realize that you are going to be more acted upon than acting in life, regardless of who you are, is when you start to sort of understand that this is not unfolding in a linear way, that not everything that happens is going to happen for a reason that you're going to know. And in this case, it's I mean, it's just all very heightened in that, you know, because it's a sort of a humdrum thing when, like, I realize at the age of 30 that I'm not going to be a prodigy or whatever, or that, <laughs> you know, an NBA career is slipping away from my grasp rapidly, like, as we speak. And yet, for Luck, it's, you know, he was able to fucking brute force his way to that 2018 season. I mean, not entirely brute force it. I mean, he did a lot of, of work on himself and everything. Mm-hmm. But that is, given, you know, and you describe it in great detail, Seth, like, given how messed up he was... The 28 season seems like a miracle. I mean, he didn't just have to work through injuries. He had to pretty much completely relearn the process of thinking through throwing a football again. Yeah, and to go back to what you were saying about the sort of moment of clarity that you don't need clarity, it's an exceptional amount of work that he put in to be able to reach that. Because he couldn't, like his wife said, you know, when, when he was injured and it was 2017, he was in a horrible mental place. He was in pain. He was angry. He was scared. He was probably depressed, whether it was diagnosed or not officially, you know, he, he was doubt of doubting himself and feeling like a failure and he would not talk. Like his wife told me, you know, she was like, I had no place to contribute because Andrew wouldn't communicate. He wouldn't even level with his wife about how much pain he was in, even though they were actually in Holland trying to 
fix his shoulder and kind of fix his head. Can you say it, the name of the place that he was at in Holland? Because once I realized how it sounds out loud, it's like a funny little laugh line. It is. Well, it's, it's yeah, I mean, I can't, my, my Dutch isn't great, but it's, it, it, as you would say it, as Andrew said it, you know, it's Veal Better. So it's like, a, it's like a clinic called called Feel Better. But, you know, he had There's this just something of, about, maybe it's the World Cup in me. Every time I see a Dutch spelling of something, I'm like, ah, oh, these fucking perverts. Look at you. <laughs> Snuck an extra A in there, didn't you? You son of a bitch. But, but I, I love it. <laughs> but, um, you know, he he had to, that that trip to to Holland, again, just kind of like opened his mind. I mean, at one night he broke and, and he cried and he confessed and he emoted in a way that his wife now girlfriend at the time didn't think that he was capable of frankly and she was ready to leave him because he just wasn't communicating with her and um you know that that meat-headed football culture of yeah ignoring pain is not only something that he had to kind of overcome and get to the other side of but also something he wrestles with now because he's proud of that mentality he not only knows that it can be self-destructive but he's also like proud of the fact that he was one of those guys that that guys could count on and that would if he began a game, he was going to finish it no matter what. Um, like grappling with those types of things, the way that we define ourselves, our self-identities, the stories we tell ourselves are a lot of things that he's really tried to work through the past couple of years. Yeah. And I, I, I like that you mentioned football culture because it isn't just football culture, although football culture is certainly guilty of it, but it's, you know, it's a wider culture. Um, and particularly in the past, I would say, decade or two, sort of a reassessment of how Americans, particularly American men, ought to think about themselves and like and what and how they think about themselves as societal forces are acting upon them, where, you know, society is saying, you got to be the fucking alpha dog. You got to be a fucking leader. You can't show weakness and all that stuff. And it's destructive to men. It's destructive to anybody. Um, and I just I. I I think that, that that is a broader, you know, Andrew Luck's story is sort of an exemplar of that sort of greater uh, cultural dilemma that people have sort of in their minds. And that was not very eloquent on my part. That's a good, I think it, it makes sense. It's, it's also an interesting to see it as a departure from that too, because I, so I read a couple of big magazine features yesterday, not to brag, but I read uh, Jeremy <laughs> Collins's bit on Herschel Walker in Esquire, which I think was also really interesting and has, you know, it deals with CTE and sort of brain trauma. He talks to Chris Borland. He talks to a guy named Trey Battle, who uh, was a University of Georgia dude and was a special teams guy uh, in the NFL for a little while. And the way that, to, to what Drew is saying, and I think this is where the perspective on luck was really interesting to me, is that those guys were, you know, as a defensive player and a special teams guy, they have that same sort of commitment and the same sort of like sort of macho idea of sublimating your own well-being to not just like to you know the greater good of a broader team but to um a bunch of really dumb half-assed uh do as i say not as i do cultural belief type things all of those guys though were foot soldiers fundamentally like that is the nature of of the jobs that they had luck was the man at the you know he was the general like he was at the front of that column leading stuff and it seems as if the idea of getting that perspective is probably harder, I guess, from that perspective because of the fact that there's not just that you are in the same 
sort of shitty macho snow globe as everybody else, but you're the main character of it, that you're setting the tone for it in a certain sense. And there's that element of guilt to the story that I found really sort of, I mean, a lot of guys that mess their bodies up playing football feel bad about it, as well they might. In this case, it seems like he's trying to sort of uh, put a personality together after years of having football stand in for it, which is a poignant thing, I think. Well, and he was also just proud of it. He was proud of being that guy. He was proud of playing through pain. He was, he loved being that guy. And um, even though he knew that, you know, it might not work out very well in terms of his long-term health (laughs) and in any way or sanity for that matter. But um, those are the things that he had to kind of try to find a way to work through and is still working through. Uh, Can we ask about the pizza thing, Drew? Yeah, I, yeah. To that end, I, I want to talk about the the ones that are a nice, juicy part in the story, where you know, in his quest to make sure he was inhibiting the role of Alpha Dog fully, Luck would order for everybody else sitting with him at a restaurant. And I just want to ask you, Seth, if someone did that when you were at a restaurant, how quickly would you murder them? If they did, did someone that. do that? Did Andrew Luck order you the veal piccata? Someplace? Oh yeah, that's like, true. They did to you too. Yeah, you'd be like, and the well, and the reporter will have steak au yep. poivre. <laughs> well, you have to remember that, and you know, we sh- we share him as a dear friend. Um, that Wright Thompson just does that. <laughs> oh my god! But the difference. So I've I've been co- I've been accustomed to that and conditioned to it for almost a quarter of a century now of friendship with Wright, but. The difference is that Wright orders for you and lets you order for yourself. So you're just getting more. Oh, okay. So that's like that's like what my mom would do. Like if my yeah. mom is like, oh, well, we'll get eight dishes for the table and then you can get yeah. whatever. Like that's, and also yeah. All right. I assume like when Wright orders for the table, it's because you're visiting him like in the bayou, right? And he's like, well, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna order for you because you're not gonna order the right like alligator well, fritter or something. Weren't you weren't you there? <laughs> I think you were there at that dinner at um BLT steak in Washington, DC after Bill Nack's funeral. Yeah, I, yeah. I was drunk. And and so we go there and BLT steak is my favorite steakhouse in DC. So I had picked the restaurant. But Wright sits down, he just starts ordering stuff. And our friend Rick Mace from the Washington Post was there. Rick is a vegetarian. <laughs> And I mean, you know, Rick ended up paying probably $180 that night for his mac and cheese. I was going to say for cream spinach, yes. uh, potatoes, dauphin was. I don't yes. know what else you even eat. at a. That's great. Yeah, he was. Rick was definitely there for the company. <laughs> let's just put it that way. <laughs> well, I got a few more questions for you uh, about Andrew Luck, uh, Seth Workershoom, but let's take a quick break and come right back. And we're back with Seth Wickersham of ESPN. A, cu- a couple more Andrew Luck questions before we ask you about some other NFL things. First of all, um, you noted that in the piece, and, you, and it came from both Andrew and his now wife, that he was a pretty neglectful husband and boyfriend while he was going through all this. And Roth and I, we couldn't help, uh, and I'm sure we weren't the only ones, who thought immediately of Tom Brady's divorce when we read all that. Did you think of that? Um, no, I, I didn't. I think you're lying, I mean, no, Seth. No, no, I, he was there. He was probably, but yeah, maybe a little bit lying. I, I think that it was like, because it was all in the framework, like something with Brady and, you know, obviously I've written about this a lot and wrote a book about it. I mean, it's something you saw coming, right? 
I mean, this has been in the ether for a long time. Yes. The costs of what he, you know, tries to do and is trying to do. And with Andrew and Nicole, it was all within the context of him having walked away. And so I, I didn't think of it the same way because I guess I saw him as having made a decision. And, you know, when he, um, in, in, in 2019, his, his ankle is bothering him. He's in training camp and three MRIs reveal, uh, you know, no, nothing conclusive. And he, um, you know, is reverting back to that person, angry, moody, scared, uncommunicative, all those things that he had worked so hard to, to not be anymore. The general manager of the Colts, Chris Bauer, told me that the scars of the past started showing up. And he had a talk with his his best friend, Anthony Costanzo, again. And Costanzo was kind of like, he could tell that Andrew was defining himself as something other than a quarterback. And that for him to continue playing, it would have had to be Andrew's world, where everyone catered to it. Now, Nicole was willing to cater to Andrew's world as a supportive partner if that's what he wants, because they had reached a different evolution of their relationship, where at least they're communicating about what it is that he's going to do, and she understands you know, what it is, and they, they support each other. Um, but it was Andrew who didn't want to do it. It was him who didn't want the world revolving around him. And that's one of the main reasons why he walked away, is he didn't want to be that person anymore. And maybe now at age 33 maybe he could see a way where he could be that great player who was on track to the hall of fame and be the person that he wanted to be at home and whatnot but at the time it felt like a binary decision and it really wasn't you know it was a hard decision but it was also a very clear one for him i guess brady in that sense stands in as like the example of what could happen if you just simply refuse to make that decision over the course of a decade yeah the sort of the simplistic thing i I thought was that Brady made the decision to put football first instead of his family and luck didn't. And that's sort of the reductive way of thinking about it. But I know it's more complicated than that. Um, yeah, they're different types of guys, uh, I guess. Also, uh, one reason luck decided to talk to you, Seth, was that because like you, he's an extreme skier. Now, Seth, I did not know that about you. Exactly. How extreme of a skier are you? Are we talking about super, yeah, how, uh, like, how extreme we talk? Like, do you jump out of helicopters with the skis bolted to your boots, like, and go uh, down like a fucking cliff face and shit? No, I've helicopter, I've heli skied, but you don't jump out of the helicopter with your skis on. I mean, you'd probably break your ankle. If oh, you so did it's that. not you, like a, an old Juicy Fruit ad where they did that? Okay. No, it's <laughs> it's more that the helicopter lowers itself and you kind of duck and jump out like you would. Like when you see those old Vietnam movies of people getting out of hell, you know, <laughs> it's not that it's not that elegant, you know, but you kind of like roll almost out of the helicopter onto the snow and then you stay ducked down and you your skis are, are attached to the bottom of the helicopter and you pull them out and then oh, the okay. helicopter takes off. You yeah. know what? I would be. Do you have your ski boots on? So that's more of a big red ad than a juicy fruit. What do you want me to raise my, my foot like Aaron Rodgers all of a sudden? You want to see if my no, no, no. I'm not asking if you have a ski boots on right now. I can I have one of those. Like... I can have one of those. <laughs> one of those viral moments of you seeing my toes. <laughs> no, no. When you jump out yeah, of the helicopter, show feet? all the guests show feet. Yeah. On the podcast. Uh, uh, well, I was just asking if you were wearing ski boots when you jump out of the helicopter because that's like a hard landing. Yeah. Like it would be you do, but you don't you kind of roll out. I mean, you don't it's it's just like I said, for for 
whatever athletic ability it takes to get down those mountains that you helicopter up to, getting out of the helicopter is just not exemplar of that ability at all. And in fact, it's just, it's very clunky and inelegant. You just kind of roll out into the snow. <laughs> like uh, that seems like Sam Darnold though. scoring a touchdown, basically. Yeah, right. just get out, roll around on your tummy for a little while, and then it's time to do some right. extreme. <gasps> exactly. All right, let's exactly. ask you uh, important uh, Patriots questions because you okay. wrote a book about them. Uh, they are legitimately, I would say, dysfunctional right now, especially with Matt Patricia still in charge of like a truly listless offense, unless it's playing my team. It's a really bad offense. <laughs> and... Uh, just yesterday, Belichick was asked about it, and he was like, well, at this point, you know, I don't really see the need to change anything. Almost as if he's sort of like punting on the season. Do you consider this season an anomaly for Belichick, Seth, or do you feel like the old man is starting to check out? You know, I think that it's – he's wanted to be involved in offense for a long time, and when Josh McDaniels was there, he was so good that I think that he had earned the right to – to call the offense as he wanted. And um, the offense as it is right now is a Belichick offense. They're doing things that he wanted to do. Um, Matt Patricia obviously pitches in and he's involved and he's the one who calls the plays, but like they've determined what plays that are going to call in any given situation over the course of the week. And at any moment, Belichick can just announce whatever whatever play he wants Matt Patricia to call. So it's a, it's, it's reflective of Belichick and it's frankly, it's not that different from how he's always been. Um, when he was in Cleveland, I'll say this with a caveat, nobody remembers those early nineties, Cleveland Browns offenses <laughs> nope. for setting the world on fire. So it's like, I'm not necessarily saying that like he's, you know, Mike Martz or Joe Gibbs or Mike Shanahan when it comes to these things. But when he was in Cleveland one year, he had 15 coaches on the staff and no offensive coordinator. And his quotes from that time about explaining what they were doing on offense are almost exactly as how he does explains it now. I mean, one of the things that, that the Patriots coaches have talked about over the years about just how exhausting it can be to work there and in some ways enriching is that when they game plan, often all of the coaches are in the room. Everybody's pitching in on offensive strategy if they have ideas. And so it can mean that you're locked in that room for a long, long, long time before yeah. you even begin your job. Ooh, that's but that's just kind of how he operates. And you can argue that um, it's both a democracy and a dictatorship, but like that's just kind of how he is. I, it's... I was That's an interesting thing. I, the only insight I had to... Uh, contribute there is that I know it, it smelled crazy in there. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, Bill would take off. Yeah, Bill would take off his shoes and put his socks, you know, his stinky feet up on the table, and yeah, the coaches are going like, "Oh my chat. god, We're doing it!" Yeah, exactly. Here we are, back to feet. <laughs> um, you and two of your colleagues at ESPN did a lot of the, um, uh, you know, sort of shoe leather reporting that led to Dan Snyder exploring the sale of the Commanders. And so, since we have you on the podcast, we want mm -hmm. to ask you. What the status of that story is right now? Do you feel like it's basically as it was? With do you expect Snyder to sell the team by March? Do you feel like anything has changed with that situation since um, since you guys first reported and since he announced that they was exploring at least a partial sale of the team? Yeah, Don Vanatta, you know your fellow Vikings fan. Oh, he's and, so um, he's so annoying about the Vikings. So him and Florio are annoying about the Vikings, well, but. I know the only Vikings fans I know are you, Don, 
and my cousin, who's who's a comedian actually, Nick Swartzen. He's your cousin? Our, yeah. Oh my all, god! Yeah, our family's from Minnesota. Not me <laughs> personally, but our family broadly. And everybody. So I always like look on Twitter to see what you guys are saying about the Vikings. But I can't. I, I I'm floored that you're Nick Swartzen's cousin. I think that's <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I feel like I was murdered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god He's, that's great he he has some funny jokes about our grandmother i'll just um but uh yeah don van Atta and tisha thompson i did that story and you know proud of it and and you know really felt like we were trying to get into like just answer the question of how he survived and i think that it inspired jim mersey to go back to the colts um to speak out about about snyder and i think that um you know once one guy does that, the dominoes start to fall. I, I think that how I would explain it is I think that owners and the league office are probably cautiously optimistic that um, he will sell, that he'll get an offer that he'll accept. Um, the process of removing him is going to be incredibly ugly and long. Um, but it's kind of in Snyder's hands. I mean, how ugly he wants it to get. And if he doesn't get an offer that he feels like taking um i think that we all know that he would love to spite the league and his fellow owners by just not selling i don't know is there a way that he gets an offer that he wants and it's still ugly or is it just the sort of thing that he's putting mm. a price tbd on uh either making an exit that makes him even richer or uh continuing to shove it up everybody's or, ass or is he doing Dan it Snyder way or or like I, I hesitate to give him like credit for playing three-dimensional chess but or he's is he just trying to make it clear that he wants the biggest offer and then he can say well i didn't get what i wanted here i am you guys are stuck with me i don't know i uh, all good questions. I, I, I think that and you and you would be you would be the one to correct me on this but it seems to me that it would be inevitable that he would get a Godfather offer. So, you know, even if it, if it's not Bezos, somebody else, because these franchises are just that lucrative and valuable. I I just uh, particularly the Commanders, because if someone else who is not Dan Snyder owns the Commanders, I think they get a stadium instantly. So, I feel like it, it's inevitable that someone will offer him seven, eight, nine billion dollars for it. Am well, I wrong? the interesting thing is that it's it's not just okay. Yes, I think that that's true. I also think that the actual people who can do this aren't as, there's not as many as you think. Like the league knows, they've already called the list. You know, they keep an active list of people who they think could be potential owners so that when these things happen, the process can happen as quickly as possible. It's not like it's open mic night among billionaires. And, um, you know, let's, let's take a step back for a second. A lot of billionaires don't get that way by getting suckered or by overpaying for assets. And while one could argue that NFL teams are fantastic investments, would Jeff Bezos pay a lot for Washington knowing that Dan basically has to sell and then shell out even more money for a stadium? Like that it gets you a, like let's it could get you close to 10 billion dollars in an acquisition if he is to like to try to do that. And like a lot of these guys don't want to look at the guy don't want to be the guy who overpaid for something that they didn't have to right so it's like a yeah, pride is, thing like uh yeah i gotta get a right. deal gotta get a good deal get like can't. it is kind of the dark element of it is that i mean and this is you know you have to make bigger points about inequality or whatever the idea that you could afford it but it's entirely a reputation thing like if you could cut a check for eight billion dollars without feeling it 
but you're not doing it because you think you might look like an asshole if you did, <laughs> is a, a real good case for like a 91% top marginal tax rate IMO. <laughs> but I feel like the ghost. Of, right I feel like the ghost of Patrick Ruby's Twitter feed has just invaded the yeah, podcast. Yeah, that's it. All it's always scrolling. Well, in. also, yeah. uh, someone did mention, and I can't remember if it was you guys or or someone else, but they did mention. Um, the fact that the Seahawks will go on sale soon, and that's a much more logical place for Bezos to go because that's where Amazon's mm. headquartered, of course. And they have a stadium, and like, and they're and they're good. So like, I, so that was the thing that I felt. And was, and you know that team was just you know the way that Paul Allen and their family kind of ran that team is arguably maybe the healthier way, where it was just kind of like a prize jewel that he could own, and it was another toy. And yeah, you know, he never, yeah, he never came to NFL meetings. You know, he he's like, I'm not gonna sit around with these guys and like talk about why after a hundred years of professional football, nobody knows what a catch is. Like I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to go do my thing and I'll show up for games if I feel like it. But other than that, you know, it's the, let them run the team. I mean, it was a very healthy relationship he had. Whereas like, obviously like Dan Snyder defines himself as the owner of that team. Uh, why did the Titans just fire their GM, Seth? I don't know. It actually happened. Um, uh, when I was on a podcast yesterday, and I have no idea, you know, what happened. It's very odd to fire a GM midway through the season. You don't really see that happening too often. Yeah, usually they do it like after the draft. They're like, well, we'll let him ruin one more draft and then we're going to fire him. <laughs> I love that tradition. That's so good. <laughs> that is, that's totally the way to go. Seth Wickersham, uh, I, you have to take off early, so we're going to let you go before we get to the stupid stuff. But we are going to send you away by remembering a guy. And the guy of the week uh, is Arnes Battle. You remember him, Seth? Yes. Okay. Yay. Yeah, we did it. We did it. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Thank you, man. Fantastic. Thank you, Seth, for coming on. Great to see you guys as always. Thank you. Thanks, All dude. right. Take care. Uh, well, that was very nice, Roth. I, you know why? I, I was going to have the guy of the week be Andre Risen, but you mentioned Trey Battle, and my brain went instantly to Arnez Battle, who was a quarterback yep. at Notre Dame before shifting over to a wideout and played for the Niners for a cup of coffee. And I just remember being like, Arnez Battle. That's definitely. I liked Arnes Battle. I liked him as a college quarterback. And I think he, I, I know the 49ers are the team I associate him with too. Did he really only have like a few seasons? I thought he was like borderline fantasy ownable. Oh, I'm sure he had like a few hundred yard games. Well, let's let's do the thing because Seth isn't here. So we're not on, uh, you know, we're not, whatever. We're, we, uh, we can just act like idiots. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's it. All right, let's do it. Uh, okay. He never had a thousand yard season. His best season 2006, he was had 686 yards and three touchdowns. He played in the league for, I am counting in real time, he played for nine years in the league. He Hell had yeah. seven years with San Francisco, two years with the Steelers. He never caught a ball with the Steelers, but that's a pretty nice little run. A full pension. Congratulations to Arnez Ballard. Yeah, that's right. Fun bag time. Dennis writes in, seems like a lot of people brag, lament that I did a lot of drugs back in the day. What's the criteria for being able to say that? I say that weed alone doesn't count, but heroin alone does. Otherwise, you need at least two drugs in addition to weed. Roth, how much? How many drugs do you have to do to say that you did a lot of drugs back in the like, day? Like, probably enough that you would never talk about how many drugs you did. Like, I feel like this is one of those things where it's something that you say when you are our age, and basically the only thing you can eat is like potatoes because everything else upsets your tummy and you're trying to remember <laughs> the other guy that you used to be. The people I know that are actually did do a lot of heroin, uh, like they'll talk about it in like 
an anonymous setting. It's not the sort of thing where they're uh, eager to relive the time that they um, fell asleep in a running car or something like that, you know? I do think uh, you can't just say, I used to smoke a lot of pot because... Because <laughs> who gives who's a fuck? That, <laughs> who's going to impress? You I know? used I mean, to I drink a that, lot of tea, and it was very... <laughs> no. er, it was herbal, and boy, I, I, I had a real taste for the stuff. <laughs> and I'll say, this is an interesting twist, and I don't know if I'm just cutting you a deal because you are my friend... But I think that your late career pivot to having a sort of a gentle jolliness habit of a green hue. I don't know. Am I allowed to talk about this? Is your mom listening to the no, podcast? No, I'm not listening to the podcast. You can All right, talk yeah, about so it. Like, the fact that you now have like a pot chair in your home where you sit and listen to Shout at the Devil after everyone goes to bed. Hey now. To me, that's how you do it. Like that is how a drug habit should look that's, right there. That's right. I think if you say, a lot, I did a lot of drugs back in the day. You have to have been an addict uh, of some hard drug, and it had to have ruined your life in some way, like if not, if like temporarily, like you had to have like OD'd, or like you had to have like you had to have uh, gotten into a car crash and gone to jail. Like there has to have there had to have been some ugly, really ugly episode in there. For Even you. in that case, though, I mean, I guess it's just the sort of the the tenor of the question to me suggests that someone is saying that for. Not clout, but they're just sort of trying to explain why they are the way they are. And, like, if that shit happened to you because, like, I definitely lost some temp jobs because I drank too much. But that's not the sort of thing that I would say to show someone what a badass person I am to hang out with. Like, that's just an embarrassing fact about my 20s. Well, you, I don't yeah, I mean, I think, I think I'm thinking of the tone of the phrasing as a bit more tinge of regret, like, uh, okay. Yeah. Like, a, and not the sort of thing where you're saying it at a party so that people know that you're not always the sort of person that attends a child's birthday. Yeah. Party. Yeah. No, you not like, to, not like for street cred. Like I think about yeah, like, right. uh, sort of like a tinge of, by the way, I'm sorry you lost some temp jobs because of drinking. That's bad. That's, that's not- fine. It, they were temp jobs. And also, you know, you never can tell uh, why you're going to lose them. The dumbest one I had, I bird shit down my neck on the way to the interview. I got it anyway. Damn. And then I lost it after one day. Because you were drinking or because of the bird? No. Uh, I just lost it for a different reason. Oh. Uh, like, mostly, I think I lost it because I, uh, maybe I was late. That sounds like me. Oh. oh but I think wow. mostly it was just kind of like a bad, I wasn't mad to have lost it. I was just mad about the fact that. I was stressed out about a job interview. A, a, like, literally, a pigeon shat down the back of my shirt, and I tried to clean it Oof. up before the interview. I still did well enough at the interview to get it, and then it didn't even amount to anything. Dang. I wound up making $60 off that whole experience. I remember so. I was a copywriter, and I was trying to get a job writing uh, you know, writing ads, and you have a portfolio of fake ads, spec ads, that you, you show to creative directors so you get a job. And I was in an interview, and the... He's looking through my portfolio and he points at a typo in one of the body copies. And he was like, he's like, what's this typo all about? And like, I was so floored. I was like, oh, oh, my partner laid it out. Like I threw her under the bus, like instantly. Wow. Like she was not yep. applying for the jo- for the art director job at that. Like I was like, oh, well, uh, uh, I had no control over that. It was my Probably. portfolio. I didn't. Seems, get, like, seems like something a girl would have done. I didn't get the job. I, anyway, I am the model uh, of integrity. Jay writes in, this one's a little bit long, but worth it. Are the most obnoxious college football fans the ones who didn't actually attend the school? That's always be, been my experience living in an area infested with Clemson fans. I have an aunt and uncle, non-alumni Tiger fans, who attend the Clemson-South Carolina game every year, but they only stop to visit Columbia for rel- 
their Columbia relatives if Clemson wins. They're apparently just as thin-skinned as Dabo himself. However, a Clemson alum just started at my job, and he's unbearable. He has a proud boy haircut, <laughs> wears a T-shirt with a thick gold chain, drives a massive truck, listens to Joe Rogan, brags about himself without a shred of self-awareness, brings up Nancy Pelosi out of the blue during Zoom calls, and makes uncomfortable references to low-income, high-crime people. And of course, he's beyond smug when it comes to his school. Have I been wrong all these years? Are alumni even worse than local bandwagoners? Roth. That is a great question. Uh, I love the idea of high-crime people as like a an attribute. Like, this is, I'm a person of crime. That's how uh, I identify myself. <laughs> It seems to me like the problem here might be fucking Clemson. That like that could actually be the issue with how people are acting here because the through line for all of this is that uh, everyone involved that is wearing that purple tiger paw hat sounds like a total fucking dickhead. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't quite know how to answer it because I have heard from people who live in SEC country. I've heard some really awful things about Georgia fans, about Auburn yep. fans, about Bama fans, of course. I've heard that Georgia fans are the are the worst of the lot somehow, which is a, really? it's like a major upset, although maybe not as much now that they are the dominant force in college football. But I think that, you know, it's you're... Weird. I actually know Georgia fans, and so there's a... I mean, I have some friends that are Bama does fans. Does Will Leach count? Like, I mean... But I think... Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's not the, the median Georgia Bulldogs fan is wearing, like, a nice natty blazer, no matter how warm the weather yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say he's... But I, I do think there's something to that, because I, I, it's different. Nobody in... I mean, I do. I didn't go to Rutgers, but I cheer for Rutgers, Rutgers. basketball. But no one, no one in New Jersey is trying to sort of gather the adumbrated prestige of Rutgers football around them to seem bigger at parties. So the idea of being someone that just wears a windbreaker and calls into Paul Feinbaum and gets upset about shit and you've got no investment in it other than what you chose is in some ways like honorable to me in how psychotic it is. But also I could imagine those people being like desperately difficult to be around. I think I, I still think it's the people who didn't attend the school. Like if you're, if you're calling into Feinbaum as an Auburn fan, but you didn't go to Auburn and there's a lot of those people. That, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a tough life that you've chosen for yourself. And then also, that's especially true like in the Big Ten. Like if there are people who are big Ohio State fans, but they didn't go to Ohio State. And it's hard to not go to Ohio State because a million people go to Ohio <laughs> State every year. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know what? It's, it's not that you're more necessarily more annoying than an alumni, but you definitely haven't earned the right to be annoying as much as they have. Yeah. Ohio State's an interesting test case there, too, because I think that, you know, regardless of what you think of the the football program, basketball program, whatever, I mean, it's a big school. It's got a great modern dance program, too, my wife tells me. No it's, shit. You know, there's a lot. It, it contains multitudes. Dance. Tell Kaylin. That said, when I see somebody wearing a ton of Ohio State gear, I make assumptions about them based on that. It's not anything to do with whether or not they got a modern dance degree there or not. It's because of how Ohio State fans fucking act. And there are there's a level that you can get as a program where a normal civilian encountering somebody dipped in that gear in their regular life will quite justifiably make some assumptions about not making eye contact or avoiding that. Yeah, you voted and for Jim when Jordan. When school has reached that level, it sort of doesn't matter whether you went there or not. Yeah, I, I I agree. Yeah, I I think we're on the same wavelength. But you know the most unfair version of that that I can think of 
is, do you remember, uh, this is a very dark remembering some guys, uh, Fred Phelps of the Westboro, fuck yeah, whatever. yes, of course. So, disgusting guy uh, showed up uh, at the funerals of gay people killed in hate crimes with anti-gay signs along with his shitty church, which was just entirely his family. Except for the people who left, uh, Adrian Chen wrote a great feature about the people that got out. But he would always wear this like Apex One University of Kansas parka that I feel like did more damage to the University of Kansas, or I guess it's, it's a Kansas University, right? But did more damage to Kansas's brand than anything that I could possibly imagine. <laughs> Like, including their football program. Yeah. It is just the most disastrous thing that you could have. Lord Lord knows. I mean, it's the face of homophobia in the country showing up every day looking like the fucking defensive coordinator <laughs> for... <laughs> yeah, because Lord knows Charlie Weiss did his best to sell the reputation. Yeah, seriously. Kansas, but wow. Uh, Brandon Nix and Chantel Holder are our producers. Nora Ritchie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to Roth and me, you got free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to StitcherPremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com too while you're at. And then Seth Wickersham, who's not with us at the moment, but his book, It's Better to Be Feared, is now available in paperback. You can get it as a Christmas gift. And wouldn't that be lovely? We will see yeah. you guys next week. Goodbye. Bye.